0: Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome back to the newest episode of the Untitled Investment Talk. This time, as always, with my co-host Carl Michael. Carl Michael, glad having you here.
1: Hi, thanks uh, to have the opportunity to join you again, Simon.
0: And uh, once again, just like in the last episode, we have a very special guest today, which is Alex from Deutsche Bank. Alex, glad having
2: you. Yeah, hi, Michael. Hi, Simon. Thanks again for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure. So um, the second part of our recording is about the future of banking. And I think most people that kind of dig deeper into the fintech space or into the crypto space have this feeling of... Things are moving extremely fast. Sometimes things change fundamentally within a couple of months, not years, not decades, as it maybe used to be in the traditional finance um, space, but really within months. New asset classes pop up, derivatives um, start working, start gaining large amounts of liquidity overnight almost. Just two days ago, when we had some of the highest volatility and highest amounts of movement in the crypto markets ever. We had decentralized exchanges that just kept working, where centralized ones were closing down. So it really feels like this space is maturing much faster than anything we've seen before. Now, as more and more traditional players enter the space, like Goldman Sachs, they just opened their crypto trading desk. In Canada, we have Ethereum and Bitcoin ETFs popping up left and right. Bank of New York, Mellon, one of the largest banks in the world, of course, is offering digital asset custody services. Citi is well for well over a year already communicating that they are very interested and doing stuff in the space. Now, Alex, my first question to you for this recording, how do you actually see the European landscape evolving in the next years? Which large institutional players do you see as kind of the first movers, the most innovative ones that stand to benefit the most from all of this innovation?
2: So, of course, my home turf is kind of the banking sector, right? And there are a couple of banks in, in Europe that are further ahead. Others are, are a bit behind. I would say names you could come up with in, in Europe is, for instance, BBVA, Spanish Bank. Also Commerzbank in, in Germany has already done for a couple of years now projects in the in the DLT space, Maybe leaving the banking space, I also think the insurance space is, is quite innovative in this regard. So conversations with colleagues or, or also customers from insurance company always yeah, make me feel really positive about what's happening in Europe. And then, of course, we have the industry in Germany, of course. I mean, the German Mittelstand is something that's very important, the backbone of the German economy kind of. And here I see they are slowly starting to becoming aware of the advantages maybe also of this new technology and there are first a proof of concepts and pilot programs running. So I'm also looking very much forward in the next years to how this is going to develop because I believe in order to stay competitive on a global landscape as well, and the German industry in particular has to kind of upgrade and also think about where and how it can use this technology in their business processes.
0: I think you're mentioning quite a good point here. It often feels like traditional banks are so stuck in their ways and it's so rare to see innovation coming out of them that we had fintechs like N26 pop up, um, like Revolut, um, like Monzo in the UK. All of these small fintechs, also Trade Republic and, of course, Robinhood, which has been quite infamous over the last couple of months, all of these fintechs seem like They shouldn't really have too much of a market if traditional retail banks would be doing their job well enough. But a really good user interface and user experience seems to have already been sufficient in order to acquire tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of new users and really dig away at the moat of the traditional banking institutions. Now, of course, as decentralized finance is becoming well, more and more mainstream, and it's um, growing in an explosive manner with things like Curve, Harvest, Aave, Compound. Those protocols that just provide yield and yield and yield provide quite stable, well, safe haven assets in the form of stable coins. There's almost an entire bank already at the core in the DeFi space. If we just put a really nice looking user interface and easy fiat on-ramp and off-ramp, then it almost feels like what's even the real need on the market for the traditional retail banks. Do you think that they are already kind of at a disadvantage compared to fintechs that really have spent a lot of time optimizing their user interface and user experience? What's your feeling towards this? Where are we at here?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, of course, always fintechs in general are, of course, a competitor to banks, but they are not only competitors, right? We usually focus a lot on this competition, but it's also in, in many, many instances, it's, it's a partnering, right? So just to make that point to start with, and then, of course, fintechs are usually more agile, and it's easier for them to, to be agile than these big uh, incumbent banks or financial institutions. And that's, of course, a, I would say at first, a disadvantage of the bigger institutions. But usually, then fintechs also come to a certain point, And we kind of realize this with N26, for instance, now, where they are also becoming kind of incumbent institutions, or at least they are growing up, and they have to take over more responsibility. And I think N26 is a nice case study in in this regard because, of course, it becomes um, more and more complex for them uh, when they grow because they have to follow more and more complex regulation. And this also makes them slower. and That's always kind of the fight you're having. You have the small startups that are super agile, that are kind of disruptive. And then you have those startups that have matured and are not startups anymore and have grown big and and are becoming more and more um, similar to existing banks. And then I think this battle becomes a bit more fair. It's not anymore kind of an uphill battle for banks. It's kind of a, a level playing field. What's always important for me is to just make this point. Banks and fintechs should work together instead of fighting each other. And you see this at at many fronts. And that's also true for us here at Deutsche Bank, where we work together with fintechs in order to just increase the speed here. We do not have to invent the, the wheel. We can also use existing solutions and try to improve our products or offer new products by simply using things that are already out there. Simon mentioned
1: already DeFi, but maybe let's go back to the very origins of digital assets that simply take Bitcoin, Ethereum, trading, custody, ETC. We do see some smaller innovative banks entering into the scene, but we do not see the large traditional incumbents yet. I know you at Deutsche Bank are working in your fintech project on a digital custody solution, but from a broad perspective, what do you think what prevents commercial, traditional incumbent banks from fully embracing digital assets and what needs to be done about it?
2: Yeah, so I think when it, when we talk broadly about digital assets, I think the market just doesn't exist yet, which is uh, probably mainly due to regulation, but also very much to the... I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a chicken-egg problem, right? There is no demand from customers, but why should there be demand if the market doesn't exist? And that's kind of really a tough a tough thing because if we talk about digital assets broadly, so let's say the tokenization of everything, right? We are tokenizing stocks, we are tokenizing bonds, we are tokenizing art, real estate, you name it. Uh, this is really a completely new market infrastructure that first needs to be built b- before people can use it, right? And in the first step, when you come up with these new market infrastructures, and now in particular, when it's about, about trading tokenized assets, you create a liquidity silos, So at first, even though kind of the end goal is to have a new market, which is super liquid, which makes trading way, way cheaper, way more efficient, the way to this endpoint or to this end goal is quite difficult and might even be expensive and i think this is why this is taking quite long and this has nothing to do with uh, startups versus banks i think we just have kind of together make this step from the current ecosystem into the new new ecosystem because i believe indeed that this new ecosystem is is better than the old one but uh, making this this step will be will be very very difficult and will take some more time if we, maybe, maybe one more sentence, if we say, let's narrow down and we do not talk about digital assets in general, but we talk about cryptocurrencies, etc. I think here it's pretty clear that banks or other incumbent financial institutions are fighting a lot with uh, anti-money laundering and CFT, etc. So it's it's very difficult kind of to adapt this new technology and integrate it into existing business processes because it's indeed something new. It's a new technology. These are new processes. You first have to understand them. And of course, you have to convince your compliance and anti-financial crime officers that it's a good idea to include this into your product suite And that's what, at least in my opinion, many of the bigger banks are currently fighting with. And I mean, from my conversations with colleagues from other banks, that's kind of at the top of their list to get their AML and CFT officers ready and and decide which tokens we as a bank are able to take in and uh, which tokens we are not able to touch, etc.
1: Okay, so that is the regulatory and compliance side. How do you see it from a a pure technology perspective? I mean, you mentioned processes already, which is somehow linked to it. How do banks tackle or will they tackle the challenge of integrating new technology in their legacy IT systems? I mean, the core banking systems, assuming that already moving from their on-premise solutions to cloud was or is a, a big challenge If they want to enter the world of cryptocurrencies and later digital assets, you talked about tokenized um, securities, ETC. How will this work? Will banks build their own system, invest in building their own capabilities, at least the large banks, and so build their own digital stack? Or would this be that they outsource most to tech providers? Because you talked about partnerships already earlier.
2: Yeah, indeed. And I I think I would actually come back to this point here and say it's it's really a collaboration um, between now banks and these, I would say, fintech or tech providers. You always have different opportunities, right? It's always this make or buy decision, but there are also several other ways you could go in between. I believe it makes no sense as a bank. Maybe if you're called JP Morgan, that's a bit different. But as a normal bank, it does not make sense to reinvent the wheel and build everything from scratch, this whole new infrastructure you need. So it makes a lot of sense to bring in um, partners and technology providers which help you uh, building the stuff and also help you integrating this new technology into your core banking systems. What I believe is important is that as a bank, Maybe not in, from day one, but in the medium run, at least, you should have the full control over these products, at least as one of the bigger banks, uh, such as Deutsche Bank. I think it would not be a good idea for us as a bank to say we are building a custody solution or we are kind of bringing in a custody solution, but we do not have full control over the private keys, for instance, of our customers. Or in the medium to long run, we of course also want to have full control of the interfaces into the different blockchains. So if we want to offer a new token, it should be us building the interface into this new blockchain environment without being dependent on any third party. This will probably not be possible from day day one, right? And this is why we need partners. And we also need partners, of course, for the whole cryptography, etc. But in the medium to long run, it should be our goal to kind of control as much of this product as possible without having to reinvent the
1: wheel. It's clear, makes sense. So it's a kind of gradual process towards more autonomy on the technological stack. Coming back a little bit to your point on regulation and, and compliance, the regulatory environment moved forward, I would say. So we have Mika, the market and crypto assets regulation. And we also have at least, uh, let's take the example of Germany here, beginning of May, the German parliament passed a law on the introduction of electronic securities, right? So not cryptocurrencies, but really securities. So following this law in a first step, it at least allows digital debt securities and likely shares will follow, to be provided on a complete digital ledger. That means the trading of securities on the basis of blockchain technology is now legally enabled. Since this regulatory barrier is removed now, I mean, let's give the compliance departments a little bit more time to get familiar with Swiss digital assets. And having a clear technology roadmap, as you uh, just mentioned as answer to our earlier question, Will most traditional investable products, I don't mean art now, I mean the classical financial products, be tokenized within the next 10 years? Or do you think this is just a dream of the blockchain community?
2: I mean, what you can do currently following this this law about electronic securities, it's it's only about bearer bonds, right? So it's not that you can tokenize now any security. It's a, an important step, but it's a small first step. So it's still not possible to tokenize a, a stock, for instance, right? Equity, for instance, in Germany. So, so it's
1: going to follow, right? So yeah, if exactly. you at least follow the latest publication, you say, okay, we start a small, but shares are definitely on the horizon. This is nothing which will be postponed for, for the next decade or so.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because you mentioned 10 years. I mean, that's a long time. The World Economic Forum once came up with a number, I think it was by 2027, 10% of the global GDP will be tokenized. Uh, I believe these 10%, if if this is true, will not be uh, stocks and will not be other liquid assets. I think we will start with very illiquid assets or assets for which not even a market exists today. Because that's where you can probably create a value add. And coming back to something I said earlier, There is very little incentive currently to migrate our equity market, which is very liquid, very efficient, to a tokenized version of this market. This incentive is way smaller than using a, let's say, real estate market, which is very liquid, which is not fractionalized, right? You cannot trade small parts of a a real estate usually and tokenize this and then have a lot of more value add compared to the value that you have by by tokenizing equity. So my prediction would be that 10 years, I mean, 10 years is a long time, but in the next five, six years, we will not see any material increase in the tokenization of stocks or equity. We will rather see the tokenization of, of more illiquid assets.
1: Maybe a kind of counterposition. I mean, if we look at what uh, happened at Binance or Bitpanda, uh, putting the, the Binance-BaFin uh, issue aside at the moment, but at Bitpanda, so these players are now offer stocks or kind of derivatives uh, of, of stocks uh, on their platform. And it's a substantial amount of stocks, at least at, at Bitpanda. But
2: they are not tokenized, right? I mean, Bitpanda is not offering tokenized That's right. stocks. That's no, 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 that- you're right.
1: Uh, my point here is, do these players start to eat the meals of the traditional players and attack them meanwhile directly on their home turf? So especially retail banks and financial service providers. And a, I think a truly strategic question, is the future of retail banking still the traditional bank account or rather the crypto wallet? And if the crypto wallet is relevant in the future, what does it mean for the strategy of retail banks?
2: Yeah, so I think Bitpanda is definitely, I mean, Bitpanda is a great company. I, I really like them. They are a unicorn now. So it's great to have uh, such an institution in, in Europe. They would, of course, rather be a competitor to stock exchanges than, than to banks. And, and But maybe to make this po- gen- point a bit more general, I definitely agree with you that we as banks do not only See competition, or will feel the competition in the future from our current competitors. So, so that Deutsche Bank has to worry about what Commerzbank does, or what the what UniCredit does, or or, or any other um, bank. But we also have to worry about what someone like Coinbase or maybe Bitpanda does, right? Because they are, or Kraken, I think they even have already a banking license. So, of course, they will be our main competitors if we enter the crypto space or the space of tokenized assets because they are already in this space. But what I also see is that they are starting to move more and more or closer and closer to our traditional um, banking business. I believe there will still be is a, still a huge gap, and I think there are certain businesses, and in particular, when we come to the corporate banking space, which is probably less interesting for most of these kind of crypto exchanges or crypto banks. But in particular, the retail banking side, I, I agree with you that there might be some disruption. And I mean, my feeling is just that banks need to think about whether they want to enter this crypto game, right? Because if they do, and if they are successful, they of course still have a value proposition because they understand very well how the normal retail business works. And I believe this business will still exist for some time. And because we are still going to use the Euro and we're still going to use bank accounts because they are quite efficient when it comes to normal payments. And, but we will also have certain use cases where we might use tokenized forms of money, right? Maybe for cross-border payments, maybe for these kind of programmable payments. And if banks are able to kind of integrate this new technology into their product suite, and it feels really smoothless for a customer to maybe make a payment with tokenized money, this is, of course, a, a very, very strong position banks could take in, in order to defend kind of their business model of today. And my dream is always that actually, users don't even realize that they are doing a payment with tokenized form of money, right? Users just have their app, they have their phone, they have their watch, they're making a payment with their card, whatever. And maybe in the background, sometimes there is account-based money is being used and other times there is tokenized money being used. And the only thing the user is realizing, the end customer, that things are working really smoothlessly and quickly and efficiently and cheaply.
0: I kind of feel like what you mentioned, we almost already have. It's just that it's pretty much only open for crypto natives so far because people are still too skeptical. But when I use a Binance credit card, for example, I pay no fees. Everything is super smooth, super fast. It immediately pays whatever currency or whatever token tokenized asset I put in the back. It just instantly converts it. I have really good spreads. I feel like the service kind of already exists. It's just that it's not coming from traditional banks, but banks like yeah, Kraken and let's see where Binance is going with banking licenses. But at the end of the day, it feels to me like at the moment, the only things I really can't pay with um, crypto or pay going through a crypto business like Bitpanda, for example, is almost like my taxes. I almost feel like the only thing I can't pay yet are my taxes. I still need euros for that stuff. So are you feeling like kind of banks are being leapfrogged by these not even fintechs, but really crypto native companies that while not necessarily full banks, all of them offer services that for for retail customers, of course, only need a year or two of more easier onboarding to make them almost irrelevant in that regard. Of course, also lending, if I want a small a small loan of maybe 10,000, 20,000, maybe 50,000 uh, euros, I can get that a lot faster and cheaper. If I just take it out in crypto that I can, of course, immediately convert to stablecoin and then immediately spend with a credit card or just convert to euros and then pay back in crypto later on, it's it's faster, it's easier, it's cheaper. I feel like the value proposition is already there. What's your feeling on that one?
2: Yeah, No, I absolutely agree. And I I, I mean, I just don't see a reason why banks couldn't also provide these services. They, they are not doing this yet. And that's, of course, um, this has many reasons. We talked about about a few of them, why banks are maybe slower than some of these fintechs. But I also think there is, maybe the demand is less big than it seems to us who are really in that space. It's it's not that retail uh, clients are kind of having a portfolio of 20 different cryptos And then want to spend these cryptos with their credit card, right? That's, in my opinion, not a product uh, retail clients are currently asking for. Of course, there are clients like you and me who are interested in those things and who are probably also using those things. But that's, of course, it's still a huge minority. So I believe what Binance is doing and these, these services Binance is offering I have a very positive feeling that we will have this in the future and this will be provided by banks or incumbent financial institutions as well. Because I believe it, you will probably have a portfolio of different tokens. Maybe you earn some stable coins, maybe you own a CBDC, you own maybe a tokenized deposits from your bank and you will just spend those. And it might even be your wallet, which decides in which instances it's best to, to spend which form of money. And I think that's something that where, where Binance is, is kind of a front runner currently, but where, where banks and other financial institutions will follow. And then you mentioned um, DeFi a couple of times now, and I don't, don't want to give you the impression that I'm kind of trying to avoid this topic. That's also something that we are, of course, looking very closely at. That's, of course, also something that's in a very, very nascent stage. But I also believe that banks will try at least or will play a role in this ecosystem because I think a pure... DeFi ecosystem without any intermediaries, that's n- not going to work. And we always come and I, and I and I feel you, Simon, because I'm always coming from this kind of thinking that we can do all these things of uh, ourselves. But co- convenience always wins in the end. And convenience means I want to give away the responsibility for certain things, be it custody. Be it maybe choosing the right financial product for my preferences, etc., and and this is where where financial intermediaries or CFI, how it is sometimes called, then in this respect will always will always play a role in the future, and it will be kind of a combination between CFI and DeFi and banks and other financial intermediaries. Just have to find their role in this ecosystem. No, I totally
0: agree with you on that one. I believe that people are willing to pay quite a lot of money and give away a lot of their let's well, call it. Um, uh, personal freedoms even if it saves them well if that say if it lets them sleep soundly at night if they have someone they can just call and complain to or someone they can just ask to make things whole again if something went wrong that's of course a large a very large value proposition that uh, we mustn't underestimate and i totally agree with you that it's probably this filter bubble where we think we can do everything ourselves but then again Most people have other things to worry about than impermanent losses or if there's a rug pull in some liquidity pools. So. One yeah, thing that's of maybe course maybe if I
2: if I can add just one sentence. I mean, one one thing I totally agree. First and second, it's not necessarily banks who will be these intermediaries, right? So I don't want to make the impression that it's kind of clear that banks will be those intermediaries. But I think we will still rely on intermediaries. And of course, me as as, as since I'm working at Deutsche Bank in strategy, I of course, want to uh, contribute to Deutsche Bank being one of those intermediaries in the future. But it could very well be that we have totally different institutions, maybe new ones that are not even existing today, which are kind of offering then intermediary services related uh, to DeFi.
0: Yeah, you could imagine a world in which it's basically a DeFi on and offboarding and basically yeah, take care of your worries for you with a custody provisioning service with yeah, where everything basically happens on-chain besides the taking care of your worries part. Then again, a big draw here is, of course, yield and uh, inflation, deflation, different currency regimes. People are, in general, I would say, quite afraid of their fiat money losing considerable value. If we look at, for example, commodity prices over the past one or two years, we're looking at very tight markets there, and for example, in, in, in for construction, but also in uranium, even in precious metals, everything is going up quite, quite fast. And consumers, I feel like, are also feeling it slowly and they're hearing it. Real estate is exploding in, in Germany, especially, of course. So... DeFi is here a space where even on something as safe, quote unquote, of course, I know that most people will not think it's very safe. But as Ethereum, you still get like seven to 8% in yield, potentially going up um, by a lot throughout the year. And of course, if you go into other more cutting edge products, um, like Alpha Homura or Harvest or Alchemix, you can get something like 30 to 40% per year. But then again, that's quite arcane. Let's stick with um, safer products. Uh, For example, um, there's a uh, one protocol I know of, Grow protocol, they're basically doing risk tranching, offering a portfolio of stablecoins, they're balancing everything out to have a kind of insurance mechanism and still offer like 8 to 10% on a stablecoin that's to like one percent or something always close to the US dollar. And if all of that is combined with a very nice user interface, then of course, this is a product that I feel like many banks would be quite happy to offer to customers. Do you think traditional banks, like you mentioned, like Deutsche, will be able to offer something as appealing as that within the next couple of years?
2: I mean, you just uh, talked about financial intermediaries being an on and off ramp into this DeFi world. And I totally see that banks could play this role of being an an on and off ramp. So uh, front end is, of course, the bank, the customer relation um, to, to our customers and, of course, also consultation and being kind of a partner that's a role bank could could play but what's happening in the background and maybe what enables banks to offer a higher higher yields might be products that are related uh, to defi i mean i'm not sure whether these uh, interest rates will stay that high i mean as an as an economist i always think about this a bit more from an econ finance perspective and interest rates always reflect have to reflect something right there's no free lunch <laughs> in finance so If you say it's not risk, then of course, you have to answer the question, why are these yields so high? And then you can think about, okay, if it's really not risk, because I believe most of it is risk, if it's really not risk, another part of this could be, of course, certain frictions. So frictions that uh, prevent people from doing arbitrage, for instance, which make the markets currently non-efficient. But this is always an argument you can always bring, and which is a very cheap argument. And it usually does not take a lot for Asset prices to be kind of fair in the sense that there is uh, there is arbitrage going on. So I believe as soon as this market grows up a bit, and you maybe um, be able to to kind of scale down uh, these inefficiencies. Um, these interest rates will simply reflect the risk that's inherent in these in these products. Because if these uh, interest rates are really market prices that occur out of demand and supply, that's just the risk um, the market is attributing to these to these
1: products. Mm, maybe one word from my side on this. I agree with you definitely. DeFi has more risk component than let's say the traditional financial system. And what we see now as as DeFi yields might go down a little bit, but uh, do you think if you look at traditional interest markets that these bonds you see on the market are fairly price current? I think that's absolutely ridiculous what you see there. I mean, if you look at, at companies with Bad ratings, uh, they they should have paid 20, 30% interest rate if you would value risk on a a market basis fairly. So if we put this efficiency argument aside, I think there remains or should remain a certain advantage for DeFi where you get at at, at least compensated for taking this risk.
2: I mean, the, the question is, if you are getting compensated for the risk more fairly in the DeFi space, why isn't everyone going into the DeFi space? And why is everyone investing in these corporate, or uh, in not corporate bonds, but I mean it's mainly government bonds, but also corporate bonds? And this is exactly the the, the point I tried to make earlier. If we believe uh, this is not kind of fair, or, or this is not reflecting risk, then of course we then have to ask the question why. And, and here we can come up them with certain frictions, right? And when we talk about government bonds of, bonds, of course, one friction might be that, for instance, institutional investors who are swimming in liquidity do not have the possibility to invest exactly. this liquidity into DeFi, yeah, exactly. right? And, and I think this is as, as soon, and this is why I'm saying as soon as these markets become a bit more mature and we get rid of these frictions, these markets become, become a bit closer closer together, I believe.
0: absolutely agree i mean if we look back like three months uh, for example for even for ethereum you couldn't properly hedge your risk with um, derivatives and right now it's at least for medium-sized institutional it would be like liquid enough there are the markets and things are moving so fast that i'm pretty sure that within one or two years we're gonna get there but then again this is of course uh, a market where more liquidity doesn't necessarily mean higher yields so, I'm also absolutely with you there, Alex, that with more mainstream adoption and less barriers to entry, yields will, I believe, definitely go down over the longer run.
1: But again, sorry, I mean, it's a very interesting discussion. I agree with you, but I think the question is that of timing. If you look at institutional investors, I mean, a lot of them have their corporate guidance, which still says they need to allocate. of their money into bonds instead of of shares, right? So especially large pension funds, ETC, they move uh, slowly. So if we consider this and the technology arbitrage or uh, impact, I wouldn't expect this gap to close very soon, right? Especially if you talk about bigger chunks of money here.
2: Yeah, I mean, the question is, if you really need uh, all institutional investors getting access to this market in order to close the gap, that's also something I mentioned quickly um, earlier, that it usually doesn't uh, require a lot in order to uh, get fair prices. As long as arbitrageurs are kind of able to overcome these frictions, you usually get fair prices even long before any institutional investor gets access to, to DeFi, right? So being able to arbitrage markets is something different than get, giving everyone access to a market. So I think fair prices will come way before institutional investors. If we, if we say prices are unfair today, that's always something I have to mention because I'm not sure. But if we say they are unfair today, they will get at least more efficient as soon as arbitrageurs can enter the market more easily. And it's not necessary for all the institutional investors to enter the market. Uh, absolutely,
0: there with you, and I think it's it's happening really fast. I mean, we've seen over the past maybe three years how really the, the automated market making in the decentralized space came to be out of basically thin air, and how it really became professionalized within a very short amount of time. And we have exchanges like FTX, for example, that went absolutely smoothly in a in times where I, I don't want to like if some of our listeners are working at traditional uh, tradfi companies, I don't want to uh, sounds. Like I'm talking down, but in times where most centralized exchanges, even Kraken or Binance, just shut down for short amounts of time in order to protect their market making. But FTX went smooth as as nothing else. And they've made like 400 million in, in just in fees in the first quarter, I think, of this year. And so I feel like this ecosystem that is coming up here is a lot more efficient than what we see in traditional finance in getting to that kind of serendipitous place that you mentioned of being a lot more efficient and reflecting risk properly. So, Alex, it was really a pleasure talking to you. And like in every episode, at the very end, we come to one big golden question where we like to ask our guest about something that's a bit further out there, something where they can think a bit, something where they can answer a bit outside the box. So this time, I would like to ask you, actually, if you didn't have to pay any attention to Regulatory or compliance consideration, let's say everything was fine that you, can take, that you can build from a technology point of view. If you could design and easily make it happen, kind of perfect, optimal idea of a DeFi offering by the bank of the future, if it's B2B or B2C, what kind of product would you get going? <laughs>
2: Oh, that's a tough question because, of course, a DeFi product offered by a bank, that's uh, al- almost an oxymoron, right? So, I mean, I think the, the role banks or, or a product I would I would love to have as a bank is, and I've mentioned this already, is that banks are kind of an intermediary and a partner between the user and the DeFi ecosystem. So that's what, what what's currently being done by things like Metamask and many other of these products that are building on top of each other. All of this can, of course, be made more user friendly and, and offered by a bank right through for kind of, I would say, uh, quote unquote, normal customers. So someone who is actually not that much interested into DeFi and what this all means that it's decentralized, but someone who still wants to participate in this ecosystem. And this might maybe sound a bit counterintuitive when I say this at first, but I believe that banks can even democratize this uh, whole ecosystem a bit more because by by lowering the entry barriers, right? So I'm trusting a, an intermediary. Of course, I'm not totally independent, but I'm willingly trusting an intermediary. And in return, I basically get uh, access to this whole DeFi market. So what I would love to see is basically, a let's call it an app or an, an an offering by banks where you have your bank account. Next to it, you have your CBDC. And next to it, you have your, your stable coins and other tokens. And, and then you can choose between lending, borrowing, maybe with a bank directly, maybe in a DeFi ecosystem. You can deposit the individual tokens into different buckets that pay you different forms of, of return. And just opening up this ecosystem to the normal end user, that would be something I think I would try to, to offer as a bank.
0: Now I think that's something I could actually also get excited for. I totally agree with you. That would definitely lower the barrier to entry and make it accessible for most people that have no interest in the technological aspect. I think a beautiful answer. And today it was a real joy having you, Alex. I really liked our more open-ended talk and um, also that you took the time to really elaborate and answer outside the the box. So it was a real pleasure having you. And hopefully we can have you again some other time for another topic. But today, yeah, I want to thank you for taking the time.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It was a a lot of fun and thanks for the challenging questions.
0: That definitely was fun. Also, Carl michael thanks again for being my co-host here and uh, doing this today with me. Sure,
1: pleasure as always. Cool discussion.
0: And to our listeners, stay tuned. Um, We're, of course, coming out with the next episode of the Untitled Investment Talk um, pretty shortly and it's going to be a really interesting one. So stay tuned. Um, Follow us on LinkedIn, follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, um, wherever you want to stay up to date. We're gonna keep you updated, and um, yeah, stay tuned for the untitled investment talk. All signal, no noise. Mm-hmm.